0: Sandy Ouellette and I am Nancy Marie co-chairs of Beyond the Mask committee to evaluate scholarly doctoral projects.
1: Next deadline for work to be considered to present on Beyond the Mask is October 1.
0: Please complete the one-page application found on Beyond the Mask webpage to be considered.
1: We look forward to working with you.
0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit CRNAfinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with Certified Financial Planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10,
2: 9, 8, Hey Sharon, what's happening?
1: Oh, good morning. Is it still morning? No, it's good afternoon. Afternoon, You know, I
2: mean, it's after 2 o'clock. I know. That means it's closer to 5 o'clock somewhere.
1: Ah, yes. Let's see, what time is it?
2: You know, I just got back from Australia, so we were 14 hours. So it's actually 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. um,
1: Do you feel like it's 3 o'clock in the morning? You know, I'm still
2: trying to recuperate. I am not going to bed at 3 and 5 anymore. But there are times throughout the day I feel like I should be somewhere else. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, uh, it's an innate, but I am getting up at six now. So, uh, you know, I've made some progress. Um, Yesterday I was up at four. So, you know, I mean, it's just
1: you're going in the right direction. Well, I will <laughs> not call you on the way to work at 5 o'clock, okay? <laughs> yeah, don't,
2: don't call me anytime soon because I'm still, like, trying to figure it all out. But um, anyway, well, it's good to be back with you. Good to see you. And we've got a, a great guest that you've been chasing around for a while. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this guest because he, he's been around for a while. Not to say that he's old or anything because he's not, but he's been around in the CRNA community and, and made a big splash. And I've always been impressed with this guy even though I hadn't had a lot of interaction with him because he's a he's a CRNA who's a business guy and I I, you know that's kind of my jam so Sharon since you've chased him for so long to get him to do this why don't you do the introduction and this is going to be part of our courage to lead series
1: I am excited to do so, and actually, when you say I've chased him around for five years trying to get him on the podcast, (laughs) actually, I've been chasing Paul longer than I have been chasing you, Jeremy, (laughs) because I have known Paul since we served on public relations together, and let's see, you were the liaison from GRC to PR, and. There's been many miles uh, that we have walked together, many bottles. <laughs> that was, that was of a wine. long time ago <laughs> Yeah, many bottles of wine we've consumed together. and you knew me when my, I had no wrinkles and my hair was blonde, not white. and so <laughs> lots of stories can be told here, but maybe we shouldn't do it on air. <laughs> but anyway, we're so glad you're here with us, Paul. And I will also, I don't think Jeremy knows this, but the first year that I served on the AANA Board of Directors, Paul was my president. D-
2: does, That's Paul, right. does Paul have a last name, Sharon, because you still haven't introduced pa- him Yes, yet, but... Paul Santoro <laughs> okay, from okay. the
1: great state of <laughs> Michigan. So anyway, Paul, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, the year you were president and what you've been doing since you were president?
3: okay thanks it's really a pleasure to be here and i apologize i was uh uh so difficult to corral and uh in, in really participating in this really highly successful series but i was president of the ANA from 2010 to 2011 and that was really i think i mean every a a president will say so it was a unique time in history and all of that but i think it i think it was uh, a unique time in our history and that right we were just Wrapping up the legislation related to the Affordable Care Act, we were still doing rule promulgation, published uh, No Harm Found in Health Affairs, you know, cost-effective analysis of anesthesia providers in um, in nursing economics. Um, there was just a, a, lot of, a lot of things that were going on in the country, um, as well as in the AANA at that time. Since finishing in 2011, in 2015, over the course of about 25 years, I built and then sold um, an anesthesia practice management company called Anesthesia Staffing Consultants. So, I did that in 2015. We sold to a national private equity-backed firm, and I think, I'm pretty sure, that that was the only 100% owned anesthesia practice management group that sold to private equity. There's been others that have been partners, right? A lot of them are mutual friends, highly respected people. But I think that was really the only one that was 100 percent owned and operated by CRNAs that sold to PE. Um, So that was interesting. I did that in uh, 2015 and worked with that company for uh, about a year and a half Mm -hmm. and then took a couple of years off and about five years ago, I I got a call from the CEO of North American Partners in Anesthesia, and they wanted a, somebody who was familiar with clinical operations uh, to get involved in revenue cycle management. And for the last five years, I've been with NAPA, and uh, I currently am in charge of what we call the front end of revenue cycle, everything that from the time a case is closed until the time a charge is posted. Uh, including management of our offshore coding partners in India, the Philippines, that kind of stuff. And I do that for 1.9 million cases a year. Um, And so that's a, uh, we're just finishing up a sort of a digital transformation and, uh, you know, moving off of uh, two legacy platforms, consolidating onto one more modern platform. So I do a, a lot of stuff with fighting insurance companies and technology and trying to make things more efficient. Um, And I am really entirely out of clinical operations, although I'm sort of the RCM liaison to the clinicians because I can speak both languages.
1: Well, you Um, make sure they get paid. Think it's,
3: it's, in, it's in everyone's best interest that they get paid yes yes i think that's a fair statement so
1: i think what you do is very important <laughs>
3: right? and the insurance companies aren't making it easier these days no, right they no. they like to make my life miserable but uh mm. yeah.
2: yeah wow well it's a it's a great interesting story and you know uh, private equity in the crna world of course there's uh there have been a lot of talk about this. I mean, in my world, private equity is every day. In the CRNA world, it hasn't been as much. So at some other time, I'll pick your brain about that because I know you've got other things to talk about. But I, I do find that very interesting and would love to to do that at another, another point in time. So, so tell us, Paul, you know, during this interesting time that you were ANA president, what was going on at that time?
3: Well, going back to probably 2001, we we first had the the federal physician supervision requirement under Part A of Medicare. Um, right, That was lifted under uh, the Clinton administration as part of an executive order, along with a whole host of other rather infamous things, which
2: we won't get into. Paul, there was a lot of things, things lifted like under the Clinton administration. I mean, uh, no, no pun intended, <laughs> That's but... <true>. Uh,
0: Skirts! <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, um, but anyways, Tommy Thompson, who was the secretary of HHS at that time, said, look, we need some quality data. And, you know, we we always knew that that was going to be part of the equation. And um, really, I think starting around 2004 was really when the work started in earnest on the development of a no harm found publication in health affairs, which I don't know that there's ever been by anybody a uh, a more powerful article in a more prestigious journal on the quality of care that's delivered by sierra news i i think that that is the the number one quality article out there so anyways it's still
1: quoted we still we still Why- use that data
3: yeah so after um that was published in august i believe um, and so for the prior four years, I basically had served uh, as in advisory capacity. There were, a lot of, there were a lot of parallels between that study design and practice management and, and that kind of stuff, it, as well as with the one in nursing economics. So anyways, we had two articles that we were armed with. There was a few others which probably weren't so prominent, but we were going to spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C., some people call it the elimination of a national, uh, you know, or the, they call it a national opt out. It's not really a national opt out, but it's the elimination of physician supervision under part A of, of Medicare. And so that was really going to be uh, a major focus for us. We hired a firm called Glover Park Group. It's a huge political influence, uh, lobbying firm. They, they became famous for, um, their work, I think, in a, in the 90s when Toyota had some really bad car accidents that were rear-ended that resulted in big fires and deaths of individuals, including children. And they managed that. It was sort of like their claim to fame. We hired that group as well as some other consulting firms in D.C., and we I thought we put together a really pretty sophisticated campaign on how we were going to work with the Obama administration. We were very excited that we had the level of access uh, to the White House um, that we did under the Obama administration. Sort of interesting side story. I mean, I met with Kathleen Sibelius, the secretary of HHS, twice. One time I was personally invited to um, have lunch in her office, which was pretty exciting, along with some other nursing leaders. And, uh, um, and I actually went to the the holiday party at the White House at the invitation of the president and the first lady. Wow. So. I got, I got we had really unprecedented access to the White House and the staff and all of the, the major uh, legislative committees in, in both to the House and the Senate. But we we really were going to uh, pursue that. We had a lot of meetings and I had it had been probably a five year plan for me before because I was on the board from 2000 to 2002. Took five years off. Then I think that's the limit that you could run for president again without going back to a regional director. And so I, I ran at that time. And so I had a, like a five year plan. In, and then, right, I had the four year uh, while well, on the executive committee to, to plan for this. So I basically took, I felt, right. And, and I think it's tough to argue that that was a really important time um, in our history. And so I planned to take work off that year and just dedicate myself to that. Obviously, I'd still be involved in running my company, and I hired great people, so I didn't have to be there on a, on a day to day basis. But I had a uh, an interest. I was a partner in a in a small four seater uh, Columbia aircraft, which is a little hot rod. And I had a uh, a real deal pilot as a partner. He was he flew in Vietnam. He flew over Kosovo. He flew for Eastern. He flew for Trump, and. And I used to fly from Troy, Michigan, right into University of Maryland. I'd have a car pick me up, and I would be on the hill like all day. Um, I mean, I was there on a weekly basis, meeting with um, from you know energy and commerce to health and human services. You name it; every regulatory agency that touched healthcare, um, I probably met at that time. And it was uh, it was a really interesting yet eye-opening experience that despite all of that sort of goodwill, the bottom line was that right? Uh, nobody in federal office was willing to stick their neck out and eliminate physician supervision under Part A um, as long as the governors had a, an ability to opt out of it. And they're like, <laughs> why, don't, why, why do I want to have all of that hassle? um you know and so it was it was an interesting and frustrating experience and glover park group had developed this really intensive and expensive i'll call it camp campaign i guess is the right word after we started to sort of get shut down on things and i pulled the plug on it i'm like it's not going to happen then the dynamics are not right here but it was still i think for the first time we had we we set it to I'm sure with social media, the way it's used now, uh, getting picked up by um, social media channels or press channels is a lot easier than it was back then. But we had unprecedented press coverage in the Hill as well as outside the Hill all over. Well,
1: make no mistake. Those relationships that you started back then has benefited us for many years in the future since then. I mean, it's hard to believe that's 13 years ago. But those relationships, there are still some of those relationships in play now that came from that beginning. And I do remember your little hot rod plane because whenever we would be (laughs) in... Uh, Illinois, working at headquarters, and then you and I would take a car to go to the airport, and you got dropped off at the hot rod while I had to go and get on a commercial flight.
3: <laughs> at, the, at the executive terminal. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, I that remember was, that. That was fun, like flying in and out of O'Hare or um, Atlanta in a four-seater Prop plane. When you're on the runway with jets, was an entirely uh, crazy experience. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I can hear you, but I can't
2: see you. We're down here, <laughs> like the little ants.
3: <laughs> but it was it was fun. Uh, Frank uh, Purcell at that time. He said well, we're not used to this kind of access to the president. I'm like, yeah, you're stuck with me. I took the year off to do this. (laughs) Yes, you
1: did. Yes, you did. Well, let's talk about, uh, you also hired our executive director that we had at that time. And you undertook uh, a restructuring of the finance department, which, you know, I have never been a spreadsheet kind of girl and you would have to help me as a brand new board member and, This is second nature to you, but why don't you talk about that just a little bit?
3: Well, in 2007, um, I was elected treasurer. And I had, since the late 90s, run my own practice, run my own business. And I had at least a working knowledge of financial statements. And although I wouldn't call myself a financial expert, um, there were certain things that didn't look right. And the numbers weren't adding up, and we were probably had unreasonable expenses in certain areas and not the proper financial controls. And, you know, and so starting in 07, I really became suspicious, and things grew and grew and grew, and and eventually resulted in a transition where we hired Wanda and we had an assessment done on the finance department and the report basically came back and said there's not one person that's qualified for the position that they've been hired for in your finance department that is an eye-opening um experience and these are things obviously we were conducting probably to date was the largest Strategic campaign, maybe, you know, with the exception of in the late 80s, early 90s, with direct reimbursement by Medicare. But absent that, news, I, I don't recall a, a larger, more strategically important campaign. And, you know, so we're spending tons of money, and our books are not in order. Mm. Our reporting was not good. And, you know, it was kind of funny because I think I got elected in part because of my business credentials, and I'm the only president that I'm aware of that got up in front of the members and told them point blank I don't trust our books and for that yeah I remember that yeah, <laughs> was, remember that. yeah was, you know it's like you gotta you gotta call them like you see them and uh so that was pretty it was pretty interesting but I think Wanda did a good job in in restructuring and putting you know competent people in place and all of that. It, it, so it was a that all of the events, including hiring John Guard as an interim, right? There was a termination of the the executive director, as they called him at that time, right? Then we hired John Guard, who passed away what nine months later,
1: right? And then right? Jackie was and Jackie an interim. took over,
3: right? And so there was just a lot of leadership transition. That was going on at that time, and um, hiring somebody that was well known um, to the members, um, to the staff, I think helped settle that situation down uh, at a very important time. But it was it was disconcerting, not really knowing um, our financial performance. And one of the things I remember is is, is sort of related to that when it comes to sort of like making good financial decisions. But we used to pay our, I think up until 2009, we paid our PAC administrative expense out of member contributions rather than dues. And anybody who's been involved at PACs at either the state level or the national level knows that's that's a freebie. You never take candidate money and pay for your administrative expenses if you don't have to, right? You get to make sure that money gets to where it's supposed to go And cover your administrative expenses through the organization, which is entirely legal.
1: (laughs) I remember, too, we found out that our lawyer had billed us $39,000 to come to our annual meeting. And we had paid him to come to our annual meeting.
3: (laughs) Oh, man reminds me that reminds me of that reminds me of, <laughs> that reminds me of another transition of an icon um and Gene Blumenreich retired um when I was uh, when I was president um mm-hmm. right, was sort of a he's a uh, what's the member category that speaks oh started? an
1: honorary member he's an honorary. an honorary
3: member there's only a handful of them right, right. And so uh, Gene Blumenreich got that yeah and then he retired that year. We're, we're looking for ways to reduce our expenses uh, by such things that you're talking about.
1: Yes, well there are many more things that we could go into but probably don't have time for but I can remember every single board meeting Wanda would say I've uncovered something else that we would need to deal with.
3: Mm. Yeah, it was it was the proverbial onion. It was. There. Yeah. No question, and at the same time, I mean, it wasn't like we were just trying to keep our heads above water and focus on the operational issues because we had these other major strategic initiatives, and um, so we were we were walking and chewing gum for sure. We were multitasking.
0: Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families.
1: Well, let's talk about another strategic issue that is still alive and well today and was started under your tenure was the 50 state service strategy. Why don't you talk about that?
3: Yeah. So yeah, it was it's kind of funny um that 10 years later people were still talking about that. Conceptually the idea was that like right, first of all strategy the execution of strategy is based on two things. The development of strategy, which requires you to have local knowledge, right? You can't develop a straight strategy from Chicago, right? It it, it doesn't work very well. You have to know all the local stuff. But at the in order to execute, right, you, you need resources. And the way nurse anesthesia organizations are put together, right, most of the resources, the expertise, are really centralized at the national level. So the idea was what data can we collect what analysis can we perform what key performance indicators what metrics can we develop so that we can have the necessary match of strategy right opportunity and resource allocation so that we can chalk up more wins and in measurable wins, right? And that's part of the business mindset as well is, is, and I always just is like, you know, advocacy is a great thing, but are we really moving the needle, right? Are we changing the situation at all? And deciding what change we want, how we're gonna measure it and all of that is important. And so that was part of the conversation, really the genesis of it, that concept. Of the 50 STATE service strategies, how can the national association partner with the state associations to whether they wanted an opt-out or if they were fighting AA legislation, whatever whatever it was? Um, how can we partner with them uh, in order to best execute a win and count the right measure those wins, count them? Um, I've always been an advocate of not just a one-time study, not an academic exercise, but actually is a key performance indicator for the AANA is on the percentage of QZ claims that are submitted as opposed to whatever medical direction, medical supervision or anything like that, because to me, that is a good way to measure the needle, right? It's a reflection of our education, our quality, our acceptance in the community if we're growing the number of QZ cases. I can tell you that qualitatively, anecdotally, I can tell you that more and more and more cases are done every year, QZ, that don't have medical direction. But we don't measure that as like a key performance indicator. I think there was a study once in 2017 or 2018 um, that said, yeah, it went up. But that's the difference between like sort of an academic study and development of a key performance indicator that you look at all the time. Right. now I don't know the cost that would have been associated with that I don't think it would be astronomical and I also think it would be very powerful from a an advocacy and PR perspective right that's a, a that would be a really powerful metric we but that's the sort of thing in development of a heat map on on where the opportunities were where we had the fires um right? and we, and we also had a lot of challenges with our state associations whether there was your financial, viability, whether there were governance issues, those sorts of things that you could incorporate into your kpis in a heat map um, as an example, um, you know there were there were some issues where this was my president elector but Jim and I visited the the state of California and at a particularly important period in time where and it was right before the California opt out I was speaking, I was speaking at the California association as president when Schwarzenegger signed the opt out, which was a really cool moment. Um, we had a, we had a nice celebration that night. And, uh, but, but Jim and I were intervening with the state level cause they had some governance issues and some political type things that they were working through. And we facilitated, you know, we kept the wheels on the bus so we could get over the finish line with the opt out. And, uh, so uh, that was that was a good thing, but there was just so many moving parts. But that was the, really the, the idea behind a fifty-state service strategy was how can how can we best partner with the states to make us all more effective. And in retrospect, the thing that I'm perhaps wish had stuck but didn't was really the utilization of KPIs around strategy. I mean, we can say we advocate, but are we moving the needle, and how are we going to measure that? That was really at the heart of it, and I'd like to see – now, we we do business intelligence that is pretty standard ASAE type stuff where, you know, what's the percentage of the membership? What's – you know, how many PAC dollars, foundation dollars per member, all that kind of stuff. We do those kind of metrics, but those metrics are around the business of anesthesia, which are important. Right. I'm not minimizing importance of that. But the value of our members, right, that's related to the execution of the strategy. Mm -hmm. And and we don't have KPIs around that.
1: Well, it was a very busy board. And I don't know if you once I jog your memory, you may remember this. But out of this 50 state service strategy came the genesis where AANA paid for all 50 states to have uh, we had a specialist that worked with each state assess them assess their governance assess their finances because we had had a couple of states that their executive director had scammed them out of their monies uh, if you remember Um, so there were not checks and balances at some of the state levels so we are the only national association that has ever conducted something like this unless somebody else has done it since then um so that came out of your genesis of the 50 state service strategy
3: yeah yeah
1: yeah did you remember that i, I
3: remember it now i remember <laughs> you it you jogged his memory a little bit because was that's never, it
1: i was a neophyte
3: the whole sort of um organizational health concept is uh,
1: exactly uh,
3: yeah. yeah yeah in in 1993 <laughs> that's tells like how old I am <laughs> um I did the fir- I was president of Michigan and I, it was the first time I ever did an organizational assessment for the state of Michigan and that led directly to us hiring professional association management and things like that so that yeah. that concept that idea had uh, been with me for a long time Wow. Yeah. Well, is there, I, I'm an infrastructure freak um, when it when it comes to uh, you know businesses, sort of my orientation. Yeah, and they're, they're they're if really
1: people who are listening this hasn't have not figured this out, he is a strategic thinker. I I think I remember the speaker at your fall assembly was what big thinky head guy. I can't remember his name.
3: Oh, yes, big, big strategy. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, but big, big think strategy. Um, and we had Simon Sinek. No, it was Simon Sinek.
1: Yeah, that was at my meeting.
3: It was at your meeting.
1: Hmm. But uh, I remember. Yeah, they,
3: uh, you, you know, remember when when they ma- I'll, I'll, I'll Google it here. <laughs>
1: they mapped all of us on the uh, the board with Herman brain dominance, and you were all the way off the chart for in yellow and strategic thinking. And I am all, I was all the way diametrically opposed to you in organizational uh, types You and I were both ends of the spectrum totally. And so what I used to tell Paul is you may have all these big ideas, but you need me to implement them because I'm the organization person. <laughs>
3: That's right. You need, you need balance. So big thing strategy was Bernd Schmidt. Bernd Schmidt. That's yeah. it. <clears throat> yep. yep. I wrote that book big Think strategy I've I've done lots of lectures um based on uh my really strong belief in uh, in a lot of the concepts that he he presented there and uh, you you remember Sharon I know you remember this so one of one of his stories was about in the Trojan Wars back in whatever ancient Greek days right when they it, they all hid in the Trojan horse went in slept on all of that anyway, that was one of his you know, like let's come up with an idea that is asymmetrical. That's nobody's done before, whatever. And so, mm-hmm. we had little pins for all the committee members. Of that's right.
1: I do remember that. I do remember that.
3: We used to. They, the ANA had, had a lot of of, uh, of of traditions and things like pins and crystal and all that were uh, were were part of all of them. So.
1: Yes, actually, uh, if I would unblur my background, you could see the the gift that you gave all of our board was the vase. And I,
3: right. from Colabic I, I Pottery in Detroit. All handmade, yep. (laughs) I still
1: have mine. So we digress. All right, Jeremy, I'm going to let you ask a question now.
2: I I appreciate that. You know, I'm just sitting here (laughs) listening to you two, like two little girls drinking a bottle of wine somewhere. You know, know, Paul, something else interesting happened during your time, and that is the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010 as well. And I, I guess my take on it would be, you know, none of us knew at that time what this really meant. I'd be interested for your, from your viewpoint, what you thought it would have meant back then, because obviously I think it was a big deal for CRNAs mm-hmm. that it got passed and, mm-hmm. uh, and and it, has it manifested itself like you thought it would, or did it take a different turn?
3: So there's one of the best things that we really, one of the best provisions that we fought for in the Affordable Care Act was the non-discrimination provisions, provider non-discrimination but it wasn't that I didn't appreciate it then, but it was very poignant at the time is that what shows up in legislation and what shows up in the rules mm. are two different things. Mm. And unless you really get stringent language in the rules, right. In rule promulgation can take years right? after, after the legislation and, and then sort of the, uh, of the backbone the political backbone to to enforce those rules um the legislation doesn't matter as much hmm. it's nice i mean and it still exists today but you know we we see insurance companies that will deny qz there's fewer than there used to be yeah. but there are some especially on the east coast it's more of a an east coast southeast phenomenon but it still exists or that, you know, recently happened with um, um, Cigna in, as well as a lot of other commercial insurances where they took reimbursement down from 100 to 85%. Now, some CNAs still still have contracts and they're getting paid 100% for QC, but their policy now is to pay at 85%. You could make the argument that that's still good. It's a heck of a lot better than Medicare where you get 100%, but it's a lot less dollars, right? Yeah. But so that was, I thought, a really important thing, even if it maybe didn't work out in the final analysis the way the, that I would had hoped. The other um, major provisions um, there, so it was, there was like high tech in there where we we're supposed to standardize the rules around billing and the transfer of information um, for EMRs and all of that. That... Especially <laughs> so since the last five years I've been involved in the revenue cycle, there is such a myriad of billing rules. It's absolutely insane. And trying to get that straight or to actually bill for medical direction when it, it occurs adds, I am sure, tens of millions, if not like hundreds of millions of dollars in administrative expense to healthcare today. And I had hoped, right, that we'd be able to streamline that. EMRs would talk to each other, right? If I had an adverse reaction at one hospital, I wouldn't have to worry about it, you know, being excluded from my records just because I went to another one. And, but yeah, we still have all those problems. So the mm-hmm. Affordable Care Act was good. Um, and And maybe I should call out some of the good things about it. I mm-hmm. think the emphasis on primary preventative care was good, right? There were certain things that were overturned by the the courts, uh, including mandatory coverage. You know, you can, I can argue both sides of mandatory coverage, but I I think that the, the affordable care act definitely led to um, more people being covered through um, through Medicaid and exchange programs. And that is a good thing, including um, right. I, even though in the U S our maternal, Child health statistics are still not that good compared to most developed countries. I'm sure that without the level of uh, coverage that uh, that population has, uh, it'd be worse. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it did some good things. I naturally remember those things that I'm more chagrined about. But-
0: attention nurse anesthetists are you ready to take the first step toward being your own boss well join us for a deep dive into the world of 1099 work with the upcoming workshop understanding the 1099 landscape for CRNAs. Discover the key differences between W2, PRN, and 1099 work, and equip yourself with essential knowledge, tools, and real-life case studies to make a confident switch to 1099. Not only will you earn up to 5.75 Class A CE credits, but you'll also have the opportunity to learn from the industry's finest, Jeremy Stanley, Sharon Pierce, and more seasoned experts. Plus, enjoy the vibrant sun and golden beaches of Fort Lauderdale while you're at it. This event, approved by the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology, is set for October 19th at the luxurious Marriott Harbor Beach Resort and Spa. Register now and take the first step toward being your own boss and potentially unlock higher earning potential as a 1099 employee. You can register right now at 1099workshop.aana.com. We'll also link to that in the description of today's show. This is an event not to be missed. We'll see
2: you in Fort Lauderdale. Well, it, it's interesting because you know at the time, you know, I thought, well, more people have access, meaning more surgeries, more opportunities for CRNAs, and I think that that definitely has manifested itself. And I think. You know, even on top of that for CRNAs, you know, the aging population, we tend to lead a, need a little bit more maintenance as we get older. So there, there are things like that that have kind of set themselves up to to make the Affordable Care Act a, a good thing for the CRNA community. Um, and, and hopefully some of the other things that, you know, we hope that worked its way through that maybe not have manifested itself yet, maybe one day it will.
1: Well, I'd like to point out about uh, the regulatory piece of it, and that's still the piece that we keep getting our butts kicked on, even to this day, is a lack of control in the regulatory arena. So, and a lot of
3: of people think that just because you pass legislation, that you know, like the 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 battle is done, done. and it really that's just the beginning of it.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Well, there were several other key reports that came out during your time. Um, The CARE report, Mm. do you want to talk about that? That was pretty innovative stuff.
3: Yeah, that was the Commission on Anesthesia Economics and Reimbursement. And the association had traditionally been, understandably, more focused on education and
1: advocacy
3: advocacy and, and things like that and really didn't get that involved in reimbursement but there were people you know like Larry Hornsby and Juan Mm -hmm. and others that had you know started to become more active and better known the association and we had a a commission put together to make recommendations um and I think that came out in 2009 2010 but it it, it made a bunch of recommendations especially around the engagement of commercial carriers because we had always focused whether it's part of our advocacy right we always talked about medicare but anybody who has run a practice knows that really the you float the boat on commercial carriers on commercial payers and where payment's going to be three to four times as high maybe more depending where you live so there was a lot of, we had great people. We had uh, Michael Hash, who was former CMS director. We had one other, uh, his name escapes me, Tom, can't remember. But uh, uh, so we had two CMS directors on there. We had, uh, you know, it was a really pretty prestigious group. Um, I don't remember all the people that were on it, but it was a good thing. Naturally, uh, um, you know, better follow through on some of those recommendations, I think would have, had us in a better position now, we're really the the commercial carriers like United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, they are so big and powerful. It's difficult to get their attention. And, and, and that's a years long process to sort of like get in front of them other than outside of AHIP, which is the association of health insurance plans, that's where we've always engaged commercials. I just don't think that that's necessarily the the best forum for it. But it was still it was uh, it was an important piece of work. It was a a body of work that was really important to me personally, just because I I was in the business of creating CRNA jobs. And that, you know, that obviously was very important. The other really big report or um, that I was involved with was the uh, cultural assessment task force, which was not that long ago. What I don't know, six, seven years ago. Maybe. Yeah,
1: Jackie chaired that task force for you, I believe.
3: Yeah, yeah. She was on it. I was I was the principal maker of the resolution. Oh
1: yes, I remember that business meeting.
3: Yes. I was a principal hot stir.
1: Uh,
3: and, <laughs> and and then when the board put it together, they wanted they wanted somebody that they thought could keep me reined in. Would and, that be
1: Jackie? So
3: that's (laughs) they knew Jackie and I were friends and I had tremendous respect for her. And she's a very strong, bright individual. So that all worked out good. But I think that the that the CATF report really brought out um, some engagement gaps and made some good recommendations. I would like to see further follow up on that. I don't think we need to spend a quarter million dollars every two years, three years, five years, pick a number. Um, I think that follow up on that could actually be done much less expensively. But yet again, talking about sort of strategic association KPIs, uh, in my mind, that's one of them, is the sort of member engagement using the CATF as really sort of the, the, the seminal work for the development of those KPIs. Um, I, I think that would be a, uh, a, well, a great I think thing.
1: There's, I think there's been a thread of that running through because we know that we're losing members uh, who have been out less than five years. And mm-hmm. I think a thread of, of that original report runs through some of the initiatives that they have been using to, to look at that and why we're losing some membership. I'd like to comment, too, on the CARE report. And it was during my year, we had the reimbursement summit, I think you helped me out with that, because I resurrected that care report, four years later, and we had a reimbursement summit, but I think, as far as I know, that, that is all kind of wound down at this particular point. Right. So there was one other report that came out during your tenure. If I need to jog your memory. uh, (laughs) Terry Wicks and Tony Chippis chaired a committee or a task force for you. Why don't you elaborate on that one? Because it's certainly affected lots of people afterwards, including myself.
3: Yeah. So it it became clear that. Number one, we, we, we probably were not having a diverse enough representation of the membership, right? It was mostly academicians who had an easier time of getting time off, or frankly, successful business owners like Larry, like myself. Like you <laughs> right, that could take time away and um, and devote it to the association. And Then, so that was one aspect of it is, and we received minimal, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was either minimal or nothing uh, as far as stipends from the association.
1: Right. I think a regional director got $2,000 for two years, and that didn't even cover any of your time off, anything.
3: Yeah, that that barely covered your paper or computer, right? And But then in addition to that, there was a big part of it, and I know Tony did uh, some additional research on this. But really, the toll that leadership took um, on the members, and right, rather famously, and you know, still fresh in my memory is Jan Stewart. And Jan and I dated for two years prior to her death, and so she and I were were close. And I, I saw this happen to her, but I also saw it happen to a lot of other people. Is you go from 150 miles an hour, being the ANA president, travel around, going to all these high-power meetings and all that. And there's sort of a, I would say, the creation of a a false sense of celebrity, almost. And then, as John would say, right, chicken today, feathers tomorrow. (laughs) And many of our past presidents or past leaders lapsed into serious depression afterwards. And that's no joke. You know, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of people that will tell you, yeah, that happened to me. And so we were we were concerned about the health of our leadership. And, and so Tony and Terry did a great job in really um, spearheading that initiative. But the, one of the biggest things was, at least I think the president year was going to be the average. I don't know what the methodology is today, but uh, at that time, I think the recommendation was that it was going to be the average CRNA salary. And although the PE year was substantially less, it was still significant. And all of it across the board was very much greater than what had ever done before. And I think it was embraced by not only the leaders, but the membership in general, because yes, it increased the the sort of uh, diversity. It allowed people those solo practitioners um, that maybe could participate or it lessen the financial burden on people so that we could have more interest in um, people running for leadership or participating in leadership so that was a that was a really um important body of work thanks so for so
1: you you leveled the playing field for people to be able to run and serve yeah. in office yeah
3: yeah. And it just, like the vast majority of our members are sort of, we have 2% in academia, right? I mean, I remember like 8% were, these numbers could be a little off, but they're close. Like 8% were involved in businesses. So the vast majority of our members were clinicians working in the OR every day. And for them to take that time off without, some sort of compensation. I mean they're already donating their time and their their effort. Um but for them to, you know, it, it just seemed to make sense to me to get those that representation into how we run the association and and helping them out financially w- was a key component of that.
1: All right, Jeremy, I'm going to let you have another question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm not sure how much time Paul's got, you know, we we can continue on here, so let me, let, I think I might have a three o'clock actually. Um, well,
1: I do want to bring up one more thing. And this was kind of a negative piece that, that uh, cost you a, a lot of heartache. And it was whenever NBCRNA came out with the recredentialing and what that was going to look like. And it was the start of some tumultuous times uh, for us that, culminated during my year. Um, yeah. so And I know that sometimes when you're president, you may make decisions that members don't necessarily agree with or understand, and even some of your colleagues who have been president before. So if you would like to elaborate on that.
3: Well, I think that the AANA, Always had this culture of we should control the CO, COA and we could should control the NBCRNA. And if you looked at the affiliation agreements, right, it was like we were compelling them to buy services from us. Mm-hmm. We had leased employee agreements where you know they would pay us for people, but they'd be on our payroll. We we carried, we mean the ANA carried sort of like the um, the liabilities associated with pension with employer lawsuits with things like that and right we had all of i don't remember what all the accrediting bodies are but basically the accrediting bodies for the coa and the nbcrna they would say that they had to be independent so there was always this conflict and in honestly the level of service that we provided in many cases to those organizations was not of the quality, and I might be in the minority of this opinion was not of the quality that I would have wanted us to deliver. I mean if somebody's paying us for a service, it should be a high a high quality service. We don't muck up your taxes, we don't right. forget to do stuff <laughs> right we, you know we, uh, you know, and and like I, I don't. I'm not privy to all the details on how the NBA CRNA exited. I think there's enough blame to go around for everyone on on that. But I, I'll I'll tell you this story, and because I, I had a great working relationship with both of those associations, Frank Giubazzi, I've known forever because he used to be program director at University of Michigan Flint, right? obviously in Michigan. Um, and i used to teach his students work at that hospital where he was at and then karen Plaus, who at that time was zagmanichi came out of wayne state and henry ford hospital and i knew we from ford hospital so i had very good working relationships with both of them and i'll never forget after dinner one time with the nbc rna board karen and i are walking ahead of the group and we're just chit-chatting and i was like so at that time, we used to take, I think it was $15 per yes. recertified member and give it to the NVCRNA. And then they would t- knock that off of the recertification fees uh, for the members. And one of the things, one of the big things, if you remember uh, my uh, sort of uh, uh, report at midyear, was all of the money we were giving to our organizational affiliates. That goes back to the PAC discussion as well. But anyways, so we were giving hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to the NBCRNA. And I said, Karen, I said, what is this? I said, we're giving you all this money. I said, we're, you know, we're, we're strapped over here. <laughs> and, uh, and she's laughing. She says, Paul, it's a member benefit. I said, Karen, I said, where I come from, we call that a subsidy. And we shouldn't be subsidizing your operations. <laughs> their next board meeting, their next board meeting, they voted to not have us do that. I didn't, It was no formal anything. It was just Karen and I walking down the street after dinner one day.
1: Yeah. Well, there's one other thing you did during your year. And then I swear, I think this is even all that I remember. You hired a CRNA to go into the D.C. office.
3: Yes, I did. One, a friend one of i think the best executives that the aana has ever turned down and that's christine Zambricki mm. and i have and continue to this day have tremendous admiration for her she she's a class act she knows her stuff she knows how to network she knows how to play big hospital politics and i i think that she was a real asset improving operations and communications uh, with the D.C. office she was um, full transparency Christine and I used to sit on the soccer fields together and watch our daughters play so just sort of another Michigan connection you know but I I knew her very well and it was uh, a pleasure plus she chaired the uh, search committee for the executive director
1: so what value did you think uh, having a CRNA in the D.C. office brought to our organization?
3: I th- I think that right, so th- there's two components. One for effective advocacy. One is that you, know, you have to have all the political connections. That's why we got the staff there and they came up in the committee structure in D.C. and all that. The other is you need a subject matter expert. And when it comes to anesthesia, when it comes to workforce When it comes to those kinds of things and and Christine coming out of Beaumont Hospital um, in Royal Oak was, they had been perennially in one of the top five surgical hospitals in the entire country. Um, Mm -hmm. They did more Blue Cross Blue Shield than anybody in the entire country. And so she was a great person to talk about to legislators about workforce issues, um, about reimbursement, things like that, because she actually dealt with it um, for decades, really, on a, at a very high level. And, and, and so I think that her being a subject matter expert in, in those regard in that regard um, was important.
1: I remember she is the one who developed our close relationship with the FTC. Yeah. That still well, remains. And and that's, you know, bad.
3: I mean, we can say that for another day. But also, whether it was in Alabama, there were several important points where, like, there were going to be actions either taken by the Board of Medicine or um, by the commercial carriers in the states that we had the FTC step in on. Um, And and Christine was certainly part of that. And um, that I'm glad you mentioned it. It, It's such a a multifaceted and and story that goes over decades uh, to put it all together. But yeah, that's really important.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, as we, we kind of wrap this up, because I know you and Sharon could probably continue this for the next few hours here and, and you need to get back to your day. <laughs> so,
3: but yeah. we, we do going to break out a bottle here. of wine if we keep talking. That's, <laughs> I know. That Sharon.
2: <laughs> well, you know, as we kind of wrap it up, and, you know, are there any leadership lessons that maybe you'd like to impart to our listeners as we kind of get those wrapped up or anything else that comes to your mind?
3: I think today, in this exists in the general political world, whatever society, but it also occurs in, in the A, is there's a lot of negativity um and divisiveness. And I I think that we're all best served recognizing the fact that there may be differences of opinion, other differences, but that really we're we're still in this together, and unifying messages are better than divisive messages. That would be what I would close on.
2: Well, I think we need that not only in the anesthesia community, but uh, pretty much all throughout the United States, and especially in political environments right now. But but, no, I think it's a great thing to, to close on. And, Paul, thank you for your time. I know that uh, you and Sharon have, have always had a good relationship and uh, been friends and, and worked together and, and know each other a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I think that what this this series is about is everything that you embody. Um, leadership, um, you know, I hear the passion in your voice. You know, you brought so much to the table to the crna community and it's different than what you know other crna's bring and you know each one of you bring a different skill set in and i you know i just watch this as an outsider you know i mean uh, what sharon what sharon strong suit is is a little different for you and what you are is a little different from her and you know the way you guys interact and are able to relate to one another with your laid-back type b personalities and you know nobody wants to be in charge and you know it's, it, it really does uh, you know and I know behind closed doors there's things that are said and done but I think one theme that continues throughout this for me is that you all and I've not talked to one CRNA doing this that didn't have the best interest of the membership and the individual CRNA sitting at the head of that bed giving an anesthetic at heart and and everything that you talked about today you know, just fits into that continued path that we're on here. And so, you know, we just want to thank you for being on. Thank you for all your leadership. Thank you for all you've done for Nurse Anesthesia. Uh, I I think it's done a lot for you as well. So I know you're appreciative of that. And, uh, you know, we just hope that somebody listening to this can kind of embody some of those things that you've done and carry the torch forward from here.
3: Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to be with you both. Yeah.
2: Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. Well, Sharon, if uh, if they like our show and they want to help us grow, how can they help us grow?
1: Well, the best way to help us to grow is to leave us a review, but make it.
2: Positive. We all know there's way too much negativity in this world, as Paul just I- said.
1: Absolutely. Tell all your friends. Share us on social media. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on the way to number.
2: Number one, just like we are in the CRNA community, right, Sharon?
1: Yes, we are. Until the next time.
2: That's a wrap.